0: Well, hi there. Thanks for stopping in. This podcast is called Views from the Crow's Nest, and this is the Monday Mess Hall. Well, hello again, listeners, and welcome back to Views from the Crow's Nest, a podcast about emerging trends in finance, technology, and various other domains of the business sector. This podcast is produced in-house for Fisher Jordan. We are a New York-based consulting, thought leadership, and outsourcing firm, helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. We use rigorous data analytics, specialized staffing, and tailored technology solutions to deliver workable strategies for clients in financial services and healthcare. Find out more about Fisher Jordan online at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. So, the podcast may be called Views from the Crow's Nest, but this series is called the Monday Mess Hall, which is something that we've started somewhat recently with a few guidelines in mind. First, it's the Monday Mess Hall, which means we are trying to record, edit, and release the conversations in the same day. So anything you're hearing in this episode was just recorded this morning. Secondly, our full-length episodes are more of the classic interview style with subject matter experts, but we wanted the conversations on the Mess Hall to be a little more off the cuff, while also focusing more on current events or hot-button topics that are even more specific than the trends we discuss in our longer-form episodes. We only give ourselves a few hours to research the topics ahead of time, because although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. Currently, the Monday mess hall conversations are between Fisher Jordan team members, but if you would like to get in on this please reach out to us at engage at com. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. Welcome to you both this morning to the Monday mess hall. Today we have, uh, once again, Boaz Salik, co-host. And today joining the conversation is Shitish Namda. Again, all of us are uh, Fisher Jordan team members here. Um, but before we get started, I uh, just want to say welcome to you both. Thanks for being here.
1: Good to be Thanks. here again, Nathan. Thank you for having me.
0: So we're gonna have a little bit of a technology focus today. Uh, I know that we often do bring in some some more current technology topics, but today we're gonna we're gonna dive in a little bit deeper on some of those things. First thing that we have to talk about, uh, we're, we're gonna speculate a little bit about the future of sports viewing last week i can't believe it was only a week ago uh the super bowl here in the u.s just aired and of course we still have the winter olympics ongoing in beijing right <laughs> or did they end and i didn't know That's uh
1: said here feb 4 to feb 20th
0: so okay so they ended yesterday great
1: just goes to show you how many of us are actually watching this
0: <laughs> leads us into our topic perfectly We're going to talk today about a story that that we ran across about how NBC Universal partnered with TikTok to promote the Winter Olympics and the Paralympic Games. Um, And they did that with content from the Olympics being posted across a handful of official NBC TikTok accounts. And they had some live stream content uh, worked in as well. So I think there's there's room to talk about whether the traditional model of televised sports is on its way out um the question i want to kick us off with here is does this feel like a larger strategy for sports broadcasters um the way streaming kind of became the the next big thing it supplanted cable um i think cable still is straggling in there but uh I, i i streamed the super bowl for instance and i know that there's a lot of that's a lot of the way that the content is going now Um, So does this feel like a larger strategy that that you'll see more of in sports broadcasting or just a way to reach a younger demographic? Um, I just want to talk more about some instances uh, where we might envision uh, social media companies forming promotional partnerships with studios like this, Um, just talking about it from a strategy perspective. So go ahead and sound off there and let me know if you need me to repeat the question
2: okay that's a very interesting question so like i have some points that i would like to bring to this and i have actually like, a wonderful instance also wherein like it already happened so it, i'm a football fan uh, i mean a soccer fan for the american people but uh, uh, so my examples are going to be a lot soccer driven so i apologize for that right off but three years back facebook actually took the rights the television broadcasting rights of la liga which is like the spanish league uh, the Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid uh, League basically and what happened was they <laughs> took it away from television and it was streaming only on Facebook and it was for free and for everyone and last year, like this year onwards, like this season onwards, basically 2021 in July when the new season started, they actually called, called off the rights because it turned out to be a total failure. Because at least in the Indian subcontinent, people were not ready for it. They were not necessarily happy with Facebook doing it because somehow the quality and the uh, reach that they had, it wasn't enough. So like what I felt was that the what you just described with the NBC doing with TikTok, it already happened for Facebook in India with respect to like the football broadcasting rights and they somehow felt that it was a failure and they have just called it off right now like now it's back on television so what i feel is like an amalgamation where you like what is what happened what's happening right now uh, of it being on television and also on streaming which allows like the user the flexibility of uh, choosing whether to view it on television or on uh, streaming is the way to go and it, i don't think it can ever purely go into um, social media platforms like facebook or tiktok
0: Got it. So you see it more as um, kind of a blend of things where it will be more about that kind of audience selection where some people are going to want to stream it. Some people are are more interested in kind of the highlights and the soundbite kind of aspects. So looking at more of a merged model, is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's that's very true. And like uh i think one thing to that is like uh, almost all streaming platforms or television companies they have their handles on various social media websites like be it twitter instagram and on like days of big events they will start promoting it in some way or the other but i don't think the way to go about it is like completely get rid of others and just put snippets because there will be people uh, like i'll i'll watch a football match for every night for the all 90 minutes uh, be it a dead rubber but still I'll watch it just for the hell of it but there will be people who will be like it's a dead rubber we'll just watch the highlights and go we'll just watch some scroll some stories and go so as you said like a merged model is what makes most sense to me it would be nice I mean I'll I'll
1: have the game on but can I actually sit there with 100 percent focused on a soccer game for 90 minutes no like I'll get distracted I'll do this I'll do that I'll answer my phone I'll go prepare some nachos, whatever it is, popcorn. So yeah, if there was a way to like, kind of like alert you like, hey, like right now is the time you should be watching the screen. Sometimes your friends do that for you, right? Like when you hear them cheering, but that would be an interesting use case, I think. But Nathan, to, an- to answer your earlier question with, the, you know, this whole thing with the TikTok and the Olympics, like you have to wonder if that's more of an Olympics thing than than a a broader question of sports viewership you know like i was just looking up some of the stats for for some of the bigger events that we have so i think the super bowl viewership beat last year's number by about five percent or so i think it was up from from 95 million to 100 million give or take five or six percent um i think nba finals last year also uh, we're up from the previous year. I don't know the exact number for the most recent Champions League final, but they they generally tend to hover around 400 million, I think. So, and I'm not, not seeing any numbers like in terms of kind of the bigger contests out there. I'm not seeing any any data that would indicate that people are not watching them on, on TV. So, for the perspective of those kinds of events, the social media could be an enhancer for it, but I I wouldn't necessarily see like traditional TV being dead or or being on its way out in terms of sports viewership i don't know how you feel yeah
2: i would agree like uh, to for some sports where there's like dwindling numbers it's a wonderful method to like garner attention back bring people back and yeah that's why it makes sense in cases of like you said like winter olympics which we didn't even know whether it's going on or over (laughs) so i think it makes sense in that those cases and to add to what you said earlier about like having the kind of alert you to go and view the match right now. So that's actually in case of football again, I will say. Uh, it's actually happening right now. So if a f- football match is going on uh, and you Google it, you'll actually get short snippets of stories. It, just, the Google itself offers it like in partnership with the streaming platform, whichever one it is, like the uh, maybe Sky Sports or BT Sport or whatever it is. So they have started offering that. So if you just scroll through the stories and you see like, OK, it's a very lively match going on, then you may want to tune in if it's a lame zero, zero going on, you may want to just skip it.
1: But I'd love to talk about the Olympics. I mean, what, what's your guys' theory for why the Olympics has gotten so kind of marginalized over the last, let's say, you know, 10 to 20 years.
0: Certainly. I think there's a humanitarian component that is involved. I know that there's some, some controversy about, and it feels like every year there's, there's like environmental concerns around like the hosting of the Olympics um the impact of it on local economies and and things like that those are some of the the things that i've just kind of anecdotally encountered but it sounds like we arrived at least at the conclusion bringing it back to the original question that we don't really anticipate a full-on shift to streaming streaming now giving way to things like TikTok, and at least in terms of sports coverage i'm wondering about it for other things i remember there was like that failed attempt with whatever Quibi was that was like this app that i felt like it was like trying to play like shorter versions of movies but it just did not get off the ground for whatever reason so as a general trend we're we're saying that would probably see more of like a merged model and this particular strategy that nbc universal undertook probably has more to do with the fact that the the specific viewership of the olympics was lagging rather than hey we're we're starting a new trend that you'll see permeate the rest of the sports marketing world but let's move on to another one here that i had for us again just a one story that i'm wondering if it points to something that could become more of a trend so this company in the uk i'm probably going to butcher how you pronounce the name called lunas if that's not how you pronounce the name somebody please correct me but we're going to call it lunas um so they're a either a startup or they're probably larger than a startup um but their mission is to take luxury cars particularly of british make you know your aston martins your rolls royce things like that and make them electric it's interesting for a few reasons number one major auto manufacturers are trying to get on board with the electric vehicle trend the demand for that uh, by releasing their own models of electric cars you're not having somebody from the outside coming in and doing that for them so the fact that the the luxury domain has not done that has first of all provided this opening for a company like Lunaz to to show up and Meet the demand, so you still get the reputation of the luxury car, but you're also driving a electric version of it. It just was sort of aftermarket rather than coming from the brand themselves. So my question for us today: uh, Do we think there's a market for this kind of thing that extends beyond luxury cars? Do we think that this extends to the idea of just any sort of classic hardware that people want for its reputation, but with an outside company bringing it into the modern? And I don't know if I have examples for that yet, but I just want to see what you guys thought of that.
1: You know, um, I think, was it Billy Joel who uh, started up this um, company that does kind of that thing with with classic motorcycles? Like they'll take a classic motorcycle design and put like a modern engine, modern transmission, all that stuff. And and that way it kind of looks like a classic, but feels like a modern piece of machinery. So I I think there are some examples of that.
2: And like, just to like, basically it is a good idea, but what I feel is like for the company itself, it's a very small customer base in particular, in this example, like the customer is someone who has a luxury car and doesn't have the electric variant of it and wants to make it electric. So I think the customer segment that they have is very small. Uh, I personally don't feel like it's a very good venture because there will come a time i think uh, the luxury brands will realize if in fact the world is to move to electric vehicles in the future which we all are kind of anticipating they will themselves design it and then what will the company like uh, lunas do and
1: you have to wonder do they spend more energy converting it from gasoline to electric than the amount of pollution they save by having it be electric at as the end state if, if you're looking at it from a purely environmental perspective is, is that actually a net positive or a net negative
0: yeah that's a good point and i i like what you brought up too Shittish, about how small the actual market for the actual luxury brand is maybe that makes it profitable for this this specific company but it, it doesn't seem like there would be a lot of room for competition and also, I'm I'm right now I'm having trouble envisioning other applications for that sort of that sort of model for the, for the reasons that you just brought up, Boaz. Maybe maybe it's not accurate to compare like the the modernization of of like old houses, for instance, um, where it takes like a, a tremendous amount of work to actually make them more energy efficient, and then you you wonder like was it even worth it to begin with? You're basically preserving a historical shell. Of in, in the case of the car, it's like you've got the hardware, but then you put a bunch of, of energy into modernizing the interior, same thing with the house. Yeah, just wondering where that lot, those lines intersect um, in terms of where it becomes worth the energy expenditure, both human and also environmental energy. So maybe this is um, this is something that only that only works in this specific use case.
1: I mean, you do have use cases, you know, like people love restoring old furniture or like t- taking old houses and making them modern on the, on the inside. So I think there's some applicability. Generally, t- tends seems to be skewed a little bit more towards the higher end items. I think, but I kind of agree with Shridhar. It'll always kind of be a specialty market, even though we we like to think everything's customized and everything's personalized these days. I think when you look from a big picture, it's still a mass market kind of economy where, you know, people are going to buy the thing that's mass produced and the thing that's advertised and the thing that's popular and has market share uh, for the most part
2: yeah like completely agree with that and like what nathan you said the metaphor of it being a shell so is like the shell worth it uh to remodel from the inside to an extent that you still want the outside looks of the shell basically it's going to be about the looks only I, I suppose but yeah it's the question comes back to is the shell worth it
0: going back to what i how i how i started this topic when i was talking about the Kind of the larger, more everyday automobile brands, they have enough of a market share that it they're actually releasing their own models uh, that are that are electric vehicles. Maybe to your point, shittish, because the market share for luxury brands is so small, it's not worth it for them to try to bring that process in-house uh, or invest in releasing an electric rolls-royce off the line but that would make sense to me that the the larger ones that you have more people buying the larger brands i mean just in terms of how ubiquitous they are makes more sense to me that those would be the places where you'd see them investing in the technology to to actually release the models themselves yeah,
1: yeah absolutely i agree with that
0: so we have talked a fair amount about crypto We've talked about adoption timelines the different things that are happening either for or against the model of enablement um again we've we've mentioned that we've we've written an initial paper at least on on what the the general trajectory might look like for something like blockchain and and factored that in when we've talked about cryptocurrency as well so we're going to touch on this again today we're looking a little bit at the implications of of more and more traditional financial entities getting involved in the crypto space one way or another specifically the financial stability board uh, released a report where among other things they theorized that crypto could be what the housing market was in 2008 so let's touch on the significance of instability magnified by legacy institutions moving into a volatile space and we will link all of the articles that we've referenced, um, in the description, um, for people to check out on their own. But what do you guys think about that?
2: Initially, my thoughts is, first of all, I apologize. Like a lot of my housing crisis knowledge comes from the movie, the big shot. So it may not be very concrete, but, uh, what I understand is there was a lot of hidden moving pieces during the final, uh, housing crisis of 2008. Uh, so in this case, like in case of Bitcoin, I think I agree that's like almost like equally volatile market as such. But I think the significant difference is that although people don't understand it very well, it's still quite an open book. It's just that the book is very detailed and uh, uh, very huge, so as to say, and to acquire knowledge from it, you have to spend a lot of time. And so that's why I think like, since it is a much more open market, uh, sorry, uh, like open to the viewer or someone, like Bitcoin in general and the concept of blockchain and Uh, um, specifically so i think it will not be that bad is what my first thoughts are
1: yeah and you have to almost define nathan what you mean by financial crisis right for example right now we're dealing with inflation is that a financial crisis is having people sit at home you know getting paychecks from the government without going to work and no economic growth is that a financial crisis or I guess what I'm saying is, does it have to be coupled with you know, a lot of headlines and unemployment and stuff like that? Or can you have a financial crisis on the other side that deals with inflation? So I guess that's the fundamental question, right? So I guess the scenario probably that people are thinking when they're talking about a financial crisis brought about by cryptocurrencies is, is if their value declines substantially, are people going to lose so much money that it's going to kind of bleed into other areas of the economy, right? But th- there's an equally likely scenario that, or maybe likelier scenario that the value of our traditional currency continues to <laughs> decline substantially, and and the value of cryptos goes up. So I, I think you kind of have to balance those two things. Generally, I would say that look that a lot a lot of these big financial crises, like the 2008 crisis. Um, Part of it is because some some people put their money in, in a bad investment and the investment ended up losing money. But the bigger part of it is the linkages, right? So in the case of the 2008 crisis, yes, you had a lot of people buying houses they couldn't afford. You had a lot of mortgage lenders originating loans that that people couldn't afford to pay over the long run. And then you end up having those mortgages lose money. But it wasn't just that, right? It was the fact that those mortgages were then repackaged into CDOs. Um, the CDOs were bought by a lot of the big banks on leverage, meaning they, like they themselves borrowed money to pay for a lot of these assets, um, and the the ratings for them weren't weren't exactly done in the most um, you know scrupulous way. And then you know when, once these banks once the values of the CDO started eroding, then it eroded the bank's balance sheets, which then caused other lenders to cut off overnight lending. You know, if if you talk about the Lehman brothers of the world or earlier the bear Stearns of the world and whatnot. And then that that then kind of snowballed. So so then now you have lending between the banks freezing. So now you have, you know, money market accounts starting to to lose value, which is a huge percentage of the world's capital are in money market accounts. And then that bleeds into other investment areas, so it's kind of like that domino effect. So you have to ask yourself: With crypto, are cryptocurrencies as linked in and and interconnected within other investment categories as you had like the mortgage-backed um, securities of of 2007, 2008?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, and I think that that's that's part of what we're looking at here. Where for a while, crypto has been kind of this separate thing. That maybe you see it reacting to certain activity in the in kind of the traditional maybe like the stock market, but it's not like it was a a one to one comparison where it's like whatever you see happening in the stock market you see reflected in crypto. Um, so for a while it was separate. I think you raise a good point where you talk about how linked in it is to the other investment categories. As you start to see the like the traditional institutions like moving into it, again, it's not like a a full-on adoption, but you're seeing a little bit more either interest or activity from legacy institutions that you it may eventually become more tethered in, which then I don't know, then you're it's almost like are you now linking (laughs) the innate volatility of crypto to these other categories and then would that would that then stabilize it or would it just mean that the risk of everything else goes up because it's it's tethered to crypto i'm not sure that's i think that's kind of where i was thinking about it
1: so with these things you always have to kind of think about not just like what people said so so it's easy to say something like oh crypto is dangerous because the valuations have gone way up so you know that Bitcoin's worth Almost a trillion. You know, Ethereum is worth a few hundred billion. Um, so if if something happens and they lose their value, and if the wrong people are invested in it, and now they have to start mortgaging their houses, then it could cause a problem. It's e- very easy to say that, but you also have to think about the motivation, right? So with crypto. Like when you think of what crypto is fundamentally, it's it's basically a a challenge to the government's ability to print its own money at the most basic level. Right. So up until the 30s, when when we started coming off the gold standard and then the 70s, when Nixon finally put the wooden stake in it, um, you know, up until then, the the government didn't really have an ability to print its own money because everything had to be backed up by gold, right? But since then, especially since like 1972, if, if you look at the way fin- financial ma- markets have operated, there's been a very, very dramatic shift. And almost all the institutions you see today and all the all the people who are running those institutions are beneficiaries of the government's ability to print essentially unlimited money um you know and and so when you see all those people coming out against cryptocurrencies you kind of have to even though they're they are smart people and they are well meaning but you still have to ask yourself okay is this person an unbiased party or are are there motivations and incentives stacked up to stacked up in a way where they're going to be psychologically biased in how they view crypto and maybe they're going to see a lot more of the risks and maybe they're they're going to be a little bit biased and not see as many of the benefits so you you always have to keep that in mind when you have something that's fundamentally you know challenging and an existing paradigm like you know like cryptocurrencies are currently doing
0: great point is that kind of how you see, for instance, like the financial stability board's comments about this? like what were what kind of kicked off this discussion to begin with as as a party that maybe is not unbiased in their commentary?
1: Yeah, it's just you you just never hear these people talking about the benefits of cryptocurrency, right? I mean, cryptocurrencies, you know, as an alternative means of of storing and transferring capital, should at the very least, Create some efficiencies, some greater efficiencies in the in the financial system compared to a, a world where we don't have cryptocurrencies, right? You never hear any anyone of in any kind of position of power talking about that, right? All you ever hear about are the risks and the the downsides and the threats and this and that and others. So you you just have to kind of, and it's natural. It's Nathan. I, I know you you're um I think my co-author when we published our Original article about how the Bitcoin um, revolution is likely to play out, and we kind of modeled it on, on past revolutions. And so, it's it's a natural thing for the system to initially challenge a new paradigm like this um, before. And and you saw it, you know, even to a greater extent, you see you've seen this with Russia and China challenging Bitcoin and and trying to, trying their best to to limit the, uh, the amount of mining that's being done, which is probably one of the most effective ways you can undermine a cryptocurrency is by limiting what the miners can do. Uh, and you've seen it impact the price temporarily, and then the price would, would just kind of swing back. So um, I'm sure there are a lot of people here who would like to do something similar, but at the end of the day, you will get these kind of challenges from big institutions and government, and the new paradigm has to survive those and then when it's clear that the new paradigm is going to survive all these challenges only then do you get kind of the embracing phase where people kind of embrace this new paradigm and then then you kind of start to unlock the full potential so i wouldn't be surprised if that's what we're going through right now with cryptocurrencies
2: and yeah like i also agree that uh, these legacy institutions what cryptocurrency is going to do is possibly put them out of business one day so that makes their judgment and makes their opinions clearly a bit biased. And I think I also have started uh, read something about legacy institutions themselves investing in crypto. So you definitely can't have it both ways where you criticize it, but you also want to have a share of the pie uh, if it's a good apple pie. and uh, but you still say, no, no, it's a burnt pie. it's a burnt pie. It's going to be burnt.
0: So in other words, haters gonna hate
1: generally speaking, yes, Nathan, unfortunately.
0: Hey, guys, great discussion on all this stuff. I really appreciate the uh, the way that we find ways to incorporate other topics into this. Um, we latch on to an initial topic, and then we kind of clarify our thinking just through dialoguing about it. But I, I really think it makes for some, some good exploration.
1: Thanks, Nathan. It was fun. Thanks, Nathan.
2: Thanks, guys.
0: That's it for this episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. As with any other podcast, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice, or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson. and From all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening, and we will see you from the Crow's Nest.